I like to preach um, series, even if the series aren't every week, even if it's just, you know, couple times a month. I like being able to work towards a goal and be able to open up um, a passage of scripture or a book of the Bible and be able to walk through those systematically. I think we learn a lot from that. Uh, We learn how to study the word as a whole. It's a lot easier. I'll tell you this from a planning perspective, it's easier because next time um, I'm scheduled to speak, I already know what I'm speaking about. So, hey, there it goes. Um, So that's really my motivation. Um, But seriously, I enjoy being able to kind of stack these things together, be able to open up the word and build precepts upon precepts presets and be able to uh, open up. So tonight, uh, what we're going to do is I really want to introduce the book of Esther to you. I want to look at some of the historical context. I want to look at some of the major players, especially the first one introduced in the book. Uh, I want to uh, really what happens in the first couple chapters of Esther is that um, the author sets the stage for the rest of the drama to unfold. And so as we come into the book of Esther, I want to um, maybe tear down a couple of misunderstandings about the book. And I want to introduce you to the things that are taking place within this story. And the more that I've studied this this book, really, uh, I think this is true of all of scripture, uh, but the more I've studied this book, the more, um, the more awe-inspiring this book becomes. Um, the more you begin to relate to the people within the story, the more you begin to see God working within the story, the more uh, scripture really just becomes alive in its pages. And so the book of Esther is um, really tears down a lot of maybe presuppositions that we can have about ancient literature. Um A lot of times we think of old stories, we think of ancient stories and Bible stories as being um, maybe very just matter of fact, or we we kind of tend to erase some of the humor or some of that. We just flatten a lot of the edges of the stories. The book of Esther is jam-packed with information. It's not as um, lighthearted as maybe the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a funny book, and it's kind of an intentionally funny book. Um, You have, I mean, anything from cows putting on sackcloth and repenting to a grown man wallowing on the side of a mountain because his plant died to, I mean, it's a funny book, right? Esther is is a lot more serious. There's a lot more gravity to the things that take place in Esther. And in fact, really, we're introduced to a very dark situation that takes place. But really, at the same time, what's going on within the book of Esther is a microcosm of the story of Scripture. So where Scripture plays out over thousands of years and over a number of different characters and different movements within the storyline of redemption, what we find is that Esther plays all of this out very quickly, very succinctly, over 10 chapters. And so as we jump in here tonight, what we're going to tackle is we're going to introduce the story as a tale of two kings. A tale of two kings. And so let's set the stage for the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, chapter number one, verse number one, we begin to get the background of the story. The author says this, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India, even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. So uh, immediately, what are we kind of struck with? Who is the introductory character of this book? It's not Esther, but rather it's King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, um, if you studied um, any of the any ancient history, the, uh, the name that you would actually find him mentioned as the, the more common name throughout history is that of Xerxes. So it's the same person, the same man, very common to have multiple titles referring to these characters in this day and the age that this is written. And so Ahasuerus, we see that he reigns over the Medo-Persian Empire. And so this is after the divided kingdom, if you're familiar with your Jewish history. The divided kingdom, Saul, uh, Saul's the first king of Israel, and then David, Solomon, after that, then the kingdom divides. A few hundred years later, the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria. A few um, generations later, the southern kingdom is conquered by Babylon. Well, then the Medes and the Persians come onto the scene and they conquer Babylon. And then they allow many of the Jewish people to return back to Jerusalem and to Judea. And this is where Ezra and later Nehemiah come into play as they begin to lead the people of God back with Zerubbabel. They lead the people of God back. They rebuild the temple and later they rebuild the walls. And so while Esther, the story of Esther plays out, the 
temple of Jerusalem has been rebuilt, but the walls have not yet been rebuilt. So God is in the process of bringing his people. He's already begun the work, but he's not yet finished the work of bringing the people back into Jerusalem and Judea. And so Esther exists and her cousin Mordecai, who will be introduced to in a moment, are introduced as um, Jews that are part of what we would call a diaspora. So these are a group of people who are separated from their land, their minority within their nation. And so we find here that the ruler of the nation is King Ahasuerus. And then look at the kingdom that he rules over. He rules over a kingdom that goes from India to Ethiopia. All right, that's a, that's a lot of land, right? India, this Indian subcontinent, this, uh, this kingdom bordered and would have been had a little bit of control within India, still modern day India, all the way over across Afghanistan and Iraq. Syria, Iran, uh, Jordan, coming down even into Africa, so over modern-day Egypt, and even coming down the coast into all the way down into Ethiopia. So this is 127 provinces, and this is before the Romans. This is before the Greeks became a world power. I mean, this is a magnificent empire. This is a work. This is a feat. This is impressive. You are supposed to read this and go, wow, that's a big deal. And then we come to verse number two, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace. Okay. And so not only do we have a massive kingdom, but now we zoom in. So imagine if you will, I'm a visual thinker. Imagine if you will, we get a glimpse of the kingdom and then we just do a tight zoom in. You know, anybody ever play with Google earth and you like zoom in on your house and it's a big world and just tightens in. That's kind of what we have going on here is you see this empire And you're being drawn into not just the city, but the palace where the king sits on his throne. And so now what we find is we find this man, Ahasuerus, being elevated above the people of this kingdom. And so the story begins with the first of these two kings, King Ahasuerus. And this king, like most kings, uh, thought he was a bigger deal than he actually was. Now, are kings a big deal in an earthly sense? Sure, right? Yeah, sure. He's, yeah, he's got influence, the most powerful man in the world. So if anyone is a big deal, I mean, Ahasuerus is a big deal. But at the same time, if you're like me um, and Ahasuerus and probably everyone else who's ever lived, we tend to make a bigger deal of ourselves than we actually are. And so Ahasuerus is very guilty of this and he displays it in really extreme ways. Watch what happens next. Verse number three, in the third year of his reign, so he's had three years to marinate in the fact that he is the greatest person on the face of the earth in his own mind. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days. And so this guy doesn't like to just think that he's the best. He likes to tell everyone else that he is the best. And he likes to demonstrate to everyone else how he is the best. And so how does he do that? He says, hey guys, come check this out. And he unfolds this magnanimous feast not just for a day, not just for a week, not even for a month, for 180 days. How many of you have ever been to a six-month feast before? No one? Come on, guys. No one's ever been to a six-month feast? No, it's ridiculous, right? This is over the top. This is opulent. This is wasteful. And yet King Ahasuerus says, hey, guys, we're going to feast for the next six months. Oh, yeah, why are we going to feast? Because I have a lot of stuff. Oh, okay. That's an occasion, I guess. And so he calls all of the people of Shushan, all the people of the the area, and he says, hey, we're just going to feast. We're going to celebrate. What's the occasion? I am. Verse 5, when these days expired, the king made a feast. Okay, so what do you do after you've had six months worth of feasting? Have another feast, right? I don't know if you want to call this an after party or what, but like, Whatever's going on, he's just like, hey guys, um, you know, we, I still have some stuff left over. You want to feast some more? 
And so what does he do next? When they're expired, the king made a feast unto Shushan the palace, both to the great and small seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars, pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver. This is speaking of, um, this is ancient Near East, right? So this isn't um, the feast that we would say, we don't, you know, we don't pull up a chair in this culture. Um, have you ever seen like the Greek paintings and they're all reclining on, those are just beds, right? So they're all reclining, they're all laying down as servants are bringing things. And these beds are silver and they're gold on a pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold. And check these vessels out. So they're gold, if that's not enough. The vessels being diverse one from another. What does that mean? It's, they're handcrafted. Like they're not like, they're not just a stock thing. Oh, I have a lot. I mean, if it's, if it's not enough that they're all gold. They're handcrafted gold cups that everyone's drinking this wine out of. And uh, royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And this is incredible, right? He's just there's nothing holding him back. He wants it. He's got it. And he's just showing everybody how great Ahasuerus is. For months on end, how great Ahasuerus is. He doesn't have a worry. He doesn't have a fear. He doesn't even have to worry about his enemies. He doesn't have to worry about running out of food. He doesn't have to worry about running out of wine. He has everything his heart could ever desire. And he wants you all to know about it. Hey, come eat. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's plenty. Oh yeah, no, I've got, I've got everything. But then we begin to see um, kind of the first omen that something isn't quite right. Um, if you've ever watched, um, how many of you have ever seen the movie Moana? Moana, be honest, okay, all right. Some of you guys, you just need to have a movie night and watch Moana, right? Uh, I'm just kidding, all right. I, um, I've got four young kids. I've got two little girls. They love Moana. I mean, actually, this is probably the longest I've gone without seeing Moana. It's been like three days. Um, in Moana, the first time you watch, you're like, oh, this is cute, right? She lives on an island and they're, you know, they sing songs about how the island is all, you know, is what they need and whatnot. After I watched it a couple of times, I'm like, this song is really creepy. Because they're like, no one leaves the island. Everything we need is on the island. And like, in my mind, their eyes just get big and kind of buggy. And they're just kind of, we're all on the island and we don't need anything else. So I just ruined Moana for everyone who uh, enjoyed it. Sorry, guys. That's kind of like what happens here in this story. Because he's, oh, opulent. Oh, everyone can, oh, yeah, oh, this is great. But then there's a verse that it's subtle. It's subtle, but watch what he says in verse, or watch what comes that the author tells us in verse number eight. And think to yourself, why does this have to be stated? Okay. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. So what does that mean? That means no one was forced to drink anything. We're not going to make you drink anything. I didn't, in a normal situation, you would say, I didn't think anyone was going to force me to drink anything. But a hashwares could. Hey, Tim, would you like something to drink? Oh, yes, you would. Here you go, Tim. Drink up. Oh, it's so benevolent that you're not making me drink until I get sick. Oh, it's so benevolent that you're not making me do this until, until you realize that this man literally could. He literally had that kind of power over his people. The drinking was according to the law. None did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. All right, boss, how, how much of it do you want us to make them drink? Oh, no, you don't have to make them drink anything this time. There's a little bit of, okay, this is, this is odd. And also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So at this time, let me pull back the curtain and we're going to see it uh, unveiled more and more and more as we go. What's really happening here, you say, well, that's very altruistic, right? Well, no, uh, this is Ahasuerus' way of saying, hey guys, check me out. How awesome am I? What we actually find is that Ahasuerus is giving into and he's revealing one of three ways that we see the corruption and the sin of his heart. Because what we actually find is that Ahasuerus is manipulating the people. We actually find Ahasuerus in his manipulation. And understand this, as we look at, um, as we look at these 
earthly kings and kingdoms, over and over again, we find this manipulation. And so what Ahasuerus is doing is he's saying, hey, listen, everybody, I can provide for you. I can take care of you. You don't need anyone else. You just need me. And Ahasuerus, for six months, he's feeding and he's feeding and he's feeding. He's saying, don't worry. I can care for you. I can be your God. And the thing is, when it comes to sin and when it comes to idols and false gods, um, idols and false gods, sometimes they can seem like good masters until you try to tell them no. For a while, it's, oh, it's easy and it's fun and it feels, okay, you know what? This almost feels freeing. I imagine going to these feasts almost felt freeing. After all, he's not making us drink anything. Uh, And so at the beginning, it feels, oh, wow, that's so kind of you. Uh, But then, wait a second, what happens when someone decides to tell the king, hey, I'm actually not on board with that? What happens when someone decides to stand up to the manipulation and say, actually, I don't want any part of this? Then what happens? Watch verse number 10. On the seventh day, so this is the after party's last day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, and so he was, he was intoxicated, he was drunk, right? Um, which he's probably been drunk for somewhere around 187 days at this point. So now he's, he, he, what does he do? He commanded uh, Mehuman, uh, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zethar, Carcass, even seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king. Um, and so these are, these are um, eunuchs that serve the king. These are those that serve at his pleasure, his servants. And what does he say to them? He says, go bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with a crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. And so what is he saying? Um, you know, this is, we're, we're adults in the room, and I'm not going to get graphic by any stretch, but at the same time, there's a lot that's taking place in this passage. Um, This is not as much as, this is not, oh, look, my wife, she's pretty, isn't she? What is he calling Vashti to do? Well, if you understand the purpose of the queen, and we're going to get into that some in chapter number two, if you understand the purpose of the queen and the purpose of the women that existed surrounding the king, this is not what he has in mind. In fact, he has something um, significantly more vile in mind. He's saying, hey, my wife is attractive. Hey, Queen Vashti, oh, she is gorgeous. Hey, come in here and put on a show for us. And what does Vashti say? Everyone else has said yes to the king, yes to the king. For six months, everyone said nothing but yes to the king. But the king, Queen Vashti, verse number 12, refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. So what does she say? She says, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not coming in. And we don't know why. We don't know if this was the first time that he asked her to do something like this. We know it was the last time that he asked her to do something like this. But Queen Vashti, for whatever reason, in this moment, whether out of dignity or whether out of who knows, we we really don't have a full understanding. But she takes a very courageous stand here and says, I'm not going to do that. You don't tell this man no. And so what happens? How does the king respond to that? Oh, it's okay right? No, 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 no. When you are a little G God, people don't say no to you. When you're, when you're leading by manipulation and then that manipulation fails, that manipulation very quickly becomes what we're going to call domination. He says, you think you can say no to me? You think you can say no to me? Who are you to withstand my will? And so he begins to dominate in this relationship. And so what does he say? He says, uh, the Bible teaches us, verse number 12, therefore was the king very wroth and his anger burned in him. And the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was, gives the list of these men, verse number, into verse number 14, which saw the king's face and which sat first in the kingdom. And he says, what shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she has not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And so I told her to do this. She knows this order is coming from me and she refused me. How are we going to take care of this? And so he brings his counselors together. In verse 16, Memekin answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen has not done wrong to the king only. All right. For a minute there, you're like, oh, okay, maybe he's got, nope, nope, he doesn't got it. 
He's not, she has not done wrong to the king only. But watch this. But also to all the princes and all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. So what is his takeaway here? If the people found out that your wife disobeyed you, their wives might disobey them. <gasps> what's, his, what's his fear? His fear is losing power, right? Losing influence. Oh, if all the women across the territories find out that Queen Vashti disobeyed you, then this is what they are going to do. And understand, this is not being lifted up as an example of godliness, okay? This is being looked at as something that's very dark, something that is very wicked, something that is a grotesque deformation of the understanding that should be taking place within, uh, within marriage. This is not a love story by any stretch. Everything that Ahasuerus is doing should be viewed and would have been viewed by the original audience as exceedingly wicked. Understand that this is a, very, a great perversion of God's design for men and women, for a husband to love and to cherish his wife and to do good to her and to dwell according to knowledge. That's the last thing Ahasuerus is doing. In fact, Ahasuerus doesn't care about Vashti at all. In fact, Ahasuerus only cares about Vashti in as much as she is able to provide for his desires and pleasure him. Outside of that, she has no value in his eyes. And so this Chamberlain, this eunuch, this counselor gets up and he says all of these things. And if it please the king, verse 19, let there be a royal commandment from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered. And so uh, when laws were written within this culture, um, there was no changing laws. If you remember Daniel chapter number six, as Daniel is thrown to the lions, um, Daniel is, um, the king finds out that Daniel um, was praying and goes and um, he finds out that Daniel has to be cast into the lion's den. What does he say? He says, maybe Daniel, your God will save you. Why? Because the king at that moment could not. He had already put it into writing. It was already a decree. It had been signed into law. Even the king himself, once the law was made, could not alter it. And so they say, go take this permanent thing, alter the law, and say that Vashti, by law, can come no more before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. So what is this? This is like a permanent restraining order. You know what? She can come nowhere near me as long as either of us live. And when the king's decree, which he may, shall make, uh, which he shall make, shall be published throughout the empire, for it is great. So it's going to take some time to get there. All the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And so he's saying, I solved the problem. No wife will ever disobey her husband again. Yay. I mean, how bizarre is this story, right? In verse 21, the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. and sent letters to all the king's provinces and every providence according to the writing thereof, to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, that it should be published according to the language of every people. And so when manipulation failed, Ahasuerus resorted to domination. And even as he resorted to domination, he also introduced, and these two go hand in hand, so understand this with me and follow along for just a moment. He also practiced, and he also showed corruption through what we can call abdication. Abdication. Not only did he come down with an iron fist, but he actually avoided the whole thing altogether. He didn't seek to make anything right. He didn't seek to say, well, Maybe I'm not the best husband in the world. There was no self-reflection. There was no internalization. There was no blame that he thought that he would bear on his own. Instead, what he did is he said, I'm going to abandon this whole relationship. I'm going to cut it loose. I'm going to let it go. And understand that oftentimes um, we can, as we look at the sin of Hashuaris, I want to be really careful and we'll jump into this more in a minute. As we look at the word of God, the word of God, um, we ought to view it as a mirror. 
we look and we see these negative traits within Ahasuerus. We see this evil. We see this wickedness within him. Far be it from us to think that you or I are immune to the same wickedness that was within his heart. You can say, well, I've never done anything like that, and I hope not. But that doesn't mean that you're immune from the same sin that's inside of him. It doesn't mean that we don't battle with wickedness and evil thoughts and temptations inside of us. And as we look into this book, really what we find is we find that this theme continues into chapter number two. I want to do a quick overview of chapter number two. This is going to set the stage for the next time we're able to open up the book together. And then I really want to dive into application and understanding today. Because as we look at chapter two, what we really find is we find this continues. This theme does not lighten up. In fact, in verse number one, we almost get a glimpse of regret, right? After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased. So we've all been there, right? How many of you have ever been angry before? All right. Me and three of you. Okay, cool. Uh, the rest of you guys, whatever. Okay. I don't trust you. So we've, we've been angry before, right? Um, and what happens when we get angry? Ah, oh, can you believe? And then this, that, and the other thing, and then take that out. And then, oh, well, that's a mess. Oh, oh, that had consequences. Oh, I don't like those. Well, I don't have to patch that hole in the wall. Um, oh, I have to go apologize to them. Oh, I don't have money for a new TV. And, you know, whatever. Uh, we, we have these things, right? We, we go off and then we can't, no, we have, there are consequences for this. And so Ashware sits down and this is the first time it finally dawns on him for the first time in months is the picture we get that his co- actions have consequences. <gasps> I mean, this guy's supposed to be the king and he's, oh, 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 consequences. Yeah, I forgot about those. So what happens? He remembered Vashti and he missed her. Aww. Because they had such a great bond and spiritual connection. Is that what it says? No. Watch this. And what she had done. Okay. We're adults in the room. Let's fill in the blanks. He missed her. He doesn't care about her. He cares about what he did for her. What she, he didn't do anything for her. What she did for him. This is selfish to the very core. He has no remorse for this. He can't undo the law now. I mean, so he understands that, but he doesn't say that he regretted his decision. It just says he remembered what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him. And so the king's servants have another brilliant idea. I mean, they're wise, obviously. I mean, they figured out how to keep women in their place. Air quotes for those of you who just listened to recording, their place is in air quotes. Okay. All right, someone's going to get a hold of this and be like, wow, can you believe he said all that? You guys know you are my witnesses, okay? Their place. All right, so what does, he, what does this, this wise person, this counselor do, okay? If you got counselors like this, um, show them the door because this guy, oh my goodness. Verse number two, the king's servants ministered, said to them, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. Oh, that's going to solve the problem. Because the problem wasn't the king. The problem was Vashti all along. So we can probably solve this problem by throwing more bodies at it. No, the problem was the king. The problem was the wickedness and the sinfulness of his heart. And the counselors are like, you know what? He seems lonely. Let's go find him a bunch of companions. Maybe he'll like one of them. Literally what's taking place. I'll show you. Let the king appoint officers in the province of his kingdom that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shush in the palace. What is that saying? Does it say invite them to the palace? No, gather them together. This is, I mean, this is absolute depravity that's taking place. I mean, this isn't VeggieTales, guys, okay? And what happens? To the house of the women and to the custody of Higgy, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and give their things for purification be given them. And let their things for purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Ashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. He said, you know what? You gave me such great advice last time. Let's do it. And he says it unironically somehow. 
And then we turn a corner a little bit in verse number five. We're going to be introduced to a couple of people, and we're going to watch this continue to play out. Verse five. Now in Shushan, the palace, all right, so this would be a great spot for like a paragraph shift, okay? In Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Store that in your brain. Mark that if you want to study it on your own. Um, there's significance in the way that Mordecai is introduced. But for the moment, we're going to leave it at Mordecai. Next time we open up this together, we'll go in depth. But Mordecai here is introduced, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which he had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So remember timeline here really quick. Let's step back. The kingdom's divided, the wicked kings in both Israel and Judah, and Israel is conquered a few hundred years later. Judah is conquered by Babylon, and Babylon takes many of the um, wealthy, the aristocrats, those with influence within their cities and tribes, and takes these influential, especially children and young adults, and takes them with uh, the Babylonians back to Babylon. Well, when the Persians came in, they came in and they uh, conquered Babylon, and they took many of the counselors, many of the wise from Babylon, and they kind of um, incorporated them, they assimilated them into their ranks of counselors within um, the Medes and the Persians, okay? And so that was kind of their MO, it's what they did. So Daniel, the book of Daniel covers this some where Daniel was in the same situation. Daniel and Mordecai had a lot in common. Um, I, I would almost be more surprised someday to learn that they had not met um, than that they had met. They were both carried away from Jerusalem. Um, they both served in Babylon and then later in the, uh, the Medo-Persian empire. And so these are both men that likely had some overlap with each other. We don't find them in each other's books, but likely had some overlap. But at this point, Mordecai is not a young man. If you remember, the captivity lasted for 70 years, 7-0. So Mordecai is not a young guy because the temple had been rebuilt now. The captivity had formally come to an end. There were Jews back in Jerusalem. The city was in the process of being rebuilt. And so this had been at least 70 years from the carrying away. And so a 70-year-old today, um, obviously 70 years old, you can still have a lot of life left after 70 today. Uh, in this day and age that we're reading about, the life expectancy was significantly lower. And so a 70-year-old in this day and age, he was, for his time, an elderly, a very old man. And so as we meet Mordecai, he had lived through all of these things. He had seen all of these things. He had been carried away in the carrying away of Babylon. And he brought up Hadassah. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter, so his cousin from what we understand. For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, when, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So we don't know how it happened or what happened. She was born in this captivity. Her father and mother passed away, and so Mordecai took Esther in, raised her as his own daughter. And so it came to pass, when the king's command, that his decree was heard, when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Hegai, that Esther was brought also into the king's house, to the custody of Hegai, keeper of the women. And so understand what's happening here. Esther has been gathered into this group of women that are being brought together for the pleasure of the king. Um, this is going to be important again as next time that we gather together in this. We're going to see some of Mordecai's actions. But Mordecai, understand this, Mordecai knows who is responsible for this action. This is a woman, a young woman that Mordecai has raised as his own daughter. And she, for all intents and purposes, whatever dreams, whatever vision, whatever plan she had for her life is over. She now belongs to the king. Whatever he decides, whether it be, um, it was some of, some of us know the end of the story that he marries her, but obviously that marriage is not blissful if you look at Vashti. Okay, there's a reason that the king is on the market again. And so that may be, or she could like dozens of others, we don't know the number of other women, be uh, resorted to and shoved off to his harem that gets called out only when he needs something for them, from them. And so... Her life as she knows it is over. Verse number nine, the maiden pleased him. This is he guy. Then she obtained kindness of him and she speedily gave, and he speedily gave her things for purification with such things as belonged to her and seven maidens, which were meat to be given her out of the king's house. He preferred her 
Esther and her maids to the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred for Mordecai had charged that she should not show it. So what does that mean? It means that obviously we know Esther is a Jew. Mordecai is a Jew. Mordecai says, hey, Esther, don't tell anyone. Now, when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after that, she'd been 12 months, according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purification accomplished, to wit, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with sweet odors, and other things for the purifying of the women. So there's a six-month process, or a 12-month process, I'm sorry, before they would even go into the king. And thus came every maiden unto the king, whatsoever she desired was given her to go with, to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. And understand what happens when it says, go into the king's house. Verse 14 lays it out for us fairly plainly. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned unto the second house of the women. And so there's the house of the women, which is the first place that they move into for a year. They go through this purification process. And then the king says to he guy or to one of the other servants, hey, I want one of those girls. I want to try the next one. And they pick one of the girls from that house. What does it say? Verse 14, in the evening she went, on the morrow she returned to the second house of the women. And so they go from there to the king. And from the king, once he has his way with, they become formally part of his harem. They are brought into, and now they say in this second house, this other place. And so they're no longer in this original space for the purification, but now they are brought there, one of the king's concubines. They are there for his pleasure. That is what they are. They are a doll on the shelf to be showed off, to be used as he would see fit. Remember this, manipulation, domination, abdication. He's not looking for restoration. He's not looking for uh, a godly intent within marriage. He's looking to manipulate and to use these young women for the things that they can give to him. Very dark things taking place. And watch what would happen. Um, they were returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shasgaz, the king's chamberlain. And so they're no longer with Hegai, they were Shasgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her and that she were called by name. Hey, uh, what's her name? Yeah, bring me her. Otherwise, you're on the shelf. And when turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go into the king, she required nothing but that Hegai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the woman, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken into the king Ahasuerus, into his house, royal, in the tenth month, which in the month, uh, which is the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. And so uh, how long, how long is this later? This is the seventh year of his reign. Remember that feast? That was the third year of his reign. And so it's been a few years since all this has played out. We don't know how long Esther was sitting there knowing that this day was coming where she'd be called before the king. But it was at least 12 months of waiting, of anxiety, of foreboding. All of these things are part of what Esther had walked through. And the king, watch verse 17, the king loved Esther above all the women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And so what happens? Um, we could call this the best of a bad situation. The best of a bad situation. So far, this isn't, I mean, Vashti didn't have it all that great, right? Um, but this is the best of a bad situation that we find here. But as we see Ahasuerus, as we look into this mirror, we see this wickedness. We see these traits just exist so strongly in him. And it ought to give us pause. We ought to reflect. We ought to understand that the same sins that exist in Ahasuerus can exist in us as well. And in fact, these same sins did exist in the people of Israel. And what did Israel do as a result of these sins? Ezekiel 33 verse 28 says, um, God is speaking, I will lay the land most desolate. The pomp of her strength shall cease. The mountains of Israel shall be desolate that none shall pass through. You see, there's a second king throughout the book of Esther that stands diametrically opposed to the behavior 
behavior of King Ahasuerus. Here's the irony of that king. That king is greater than, that king is uh, eternal, that king is above King Ahasuerus. This is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he, throughout the entirety of the book of Esther, still sits on the throne. But you know what the irony of this book is, is that throughout the book, this king is never mentioned by name. You can go through the whole book of Esther, you will not find God mentioned. And yet it's in scripture. An entire 10 chapters of the Bible that do not even once bring up the name of the Lord. Does that mean that God is absent from the story of Esther? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't misunderstand God's silence for God's absence. In fact, God is at work in an incredible way throughout this entire book. And I want to show you just one of those ways through the introduction. Because you see the story of Esther, again, it takes place in the end of the exile. The temple is rebuilt. The walls are not yet. The sins of Israel were many, and there were many of the same sins that we see in Ahasuerus. You see, the kings of Israel had failed them and failed them and failed them. God had warned the people of Israel, you're going to set up kings for yourself. You know what your kings are going to do? They're going to send your sons to war. They're going to take your daughters and they're going to make them his, their wives and concubines. They are going to treat your children this way. And yet the people came and said, we want a king. They're reaping. Esther, sadly, is reaping a lot of the consequences of the decisions of her ancestors. A lot of their sinfulness and their rebellion is coming out on Esther. But God is going to use Esther in a magnificent, a magnificent way. Because you see, while Ahasuerus, king number one, is all about manipulation, uh, is all about this domination and eventually this abdication, the throwing away of those that he does not see use in, the second king, God is about restoration. Restoration. You see, God does not have a need of manipulating you. God does not need to pull your strings like a puppeteer. God does not need to dominate and to assert himself in this way as thou shalt do the thing that I say. And in fact, and especially God does not abdicate. He does not walk away from his duty. But God, God is in the work of restoration. Isaiah 41, 19, it's a beautiful verse. It says, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar. And this is speaking after the exile. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shitta tree, the myrtle, the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree. Remember, the desert, I will set up the fir tree, the pine, the box tree together. He's saying, I'm going to take this desert and I'm going to turn it into a garden. Things are going to grow. There will be life there. Isaiah 55, verse 13. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord, to Yahweh, for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And you know what's interesting is there's, there's a specific word, a specific type of plant that's mentioned in those two verses that I want to focus on for just a moment. And that is the myrtle tree. The myrtle. It's an interesting plant. In the scripture, it's, um, we actually find it four times. Four times. Um, two are the ones we just read. We find it one more time in Zechariah chapter number one. Zechariah sees a vision of a man who's hidden among myrtle trees. And Zechariah is another exile prophet. And so he's prophesying this is one day what's going to come. And this man within the, among the myrtle trees gives a prophecy of the restoration of Israel that is to come. And then we find it one other time in the book of Nehemiah chapter number eight. Uh, when as they are finishing the rebuilding of the walls, the leaders of Jerusalem say, hey, it's time for a feast. Uh, it's time to celebrate. Go out into the wilderness and gather up and he lists plants of which include the myrtle. Take these plants and build for yourselves booths as we celebrate how God has tabernacled among his people. This is a feast of the tabernacle, a feast of booths. And so once again, four times, we see this myrtle tree listed in scripture, only four times. And in each of these four times, it's tied in to the idea and to the theme and the purpose of restoration. So you say, all right, Nate, what's going on? We didn't see that anywhere in Esther. We just read two chapters and like, I don't see, I, what are you talking about? Let's, let's back up just a moment. Esther chapter number two, look at verse number seven. And it's, uh, 
when you're reading through the scriptures, um, especially when you're reading narratives, let me throw this at you, and I think this will help you a lot. When you're reading through narratives, always pay attention to the way that someone is introduced. Pay attention to the way that an individual is introduced. Today, we spent time in how Ahasuerus is introduced. Next time we gather and look at this book, we're going to look at um, Mordecai, and we're going to look at his enemy, Haman. We're going to look at their introductions because they matter. Right here, Esther is introduced, and she's introduced in a way that's unique within the book. This is the only time within the book, um, to the best of my knowledge, that you see this brought up. And uh, what does the verse say? And he brought up Hadassah. Hadassah. It's an interesting Hebrew name, Hadassah. What does the name Hadassah mean? Anyone have a note in their Bible or someone Googling it? What does the name Hadassah mean? It means myrtle. So there are what we really find. There are five uses of myrtle within scripture. Four explicitly tied to the restoration of God's people. And one embedded in the actual name of this woman, Esther. Because in the middle of this, even though God is not explicitly mentioned, it doesn't mean that he is not there. Because what we actually find is that God, throughout the book of Esther, he is combating manipulation, he is combating domination, he is combating abdication in an empire, and he's using nothing but an old man and an orphan girl, and he is going to bring about restoration. And if God can use them, can't God use anyone? If God can do a work through them, if God can bring about this restoration of his people through the most unlikely people in an unlikely situation before, an, before a terrifying, ungodly, wicked king, can't God restore even today? You see, we live in a, a wicked culture, do we not? Uh, as we read through Esther 1 and 2, um, I think you'd have a very hard time arguing anything other than the fact that we've always lived in a wicked culture. Since Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, sin has always been inside of us and around us. We have always been surrounded by and swallowed up in sin. And we live in a world that bears truth to this reality. And it's not enough that it's outside of us, but we battle it inside of us too. We are, in every sense of the word, surrounded by this depravity. So then what do we do? God has promised that he will restore, but I can't see him right now. Well, that's what Esther is all about. God says he's going to restore. I can't see how he's going to do this. This feels, it feels a lot more like destruction than restoration. But God's still working. And so, my friends, I want to give you a couple of very quick things, and I want to put a little bow on this and go on our merry way. As we are trying to stay faithful and waiting for God's restoration, let me remind you of two things, two ways that we can go sidetrack, two ways that we will not see played out in the book of Esther. Um, first of all, do not despair. Do not despair. Even though we look and we live in a world that is sin-filled, do not despair. Don't buy into the mentality that says, we just got to hang on until God comes back. No, God's called us to take the offensive. He's not called us to, be, uh, to hide our light so that it may not be put out. Darkness doesn't put out light. Darkness doesn't drive out light. Light shines in darkness and makes darkness light. And he has called his church for this purpose. Don't despair, but also do this. Don't do this. Don't assimilate. Don't say, well, the world is behaving this way, so I want to blend into the world. Again, light, a city that is set on a hill, cannot be hid, Jesus tells us. And so we have to resist the urge to despair, resist the urge to assimilate. And we're going to find that Esther and Mordecai, they battle this urge throughout the book. They live in a dark day. They are in such close proximity to danger. It would be easier for them to despair. It would be easier for them to just try to blend in. But they're going to have to face these things head on. And remember this, remember this. There is a king even though you don't see him with your eyes, even though you don't hear him with your ears, there is a king who is fighting to restore. The one king was in front of everybody. He was obvious. He was named. He was tangible. But there's another king, a greater king, working in the story, doing a greater thing in the story. And this king is fighting for your restoration. He's fighting for, and understand this, he's fighting for your restoration. You see, God wants to restore you. That sin that's inside of you, you're born with it. 
You're born into it. But yet at the same time, even while you were dead in trespasses and sin, you can be made alive through Christ Jesus. Through faith in his name, through faith in the work of Jesus, you can be restored to God. That sin doesn't have to have control over you. You can say, God, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need to be made right. And God can restore you. He can make you new. And for many of you in here today, God has made you new. You are a new creature. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. What we might say in the church world, you got saved, right? And that's a restorative work, a work of the restoration of God that has taken place in your life. But also understand this, not only can he restore you individually through the work of Jesus Christ, but one day he will restore all things. And even now he is beginning to restore all things. That's the hope of the believer. That's the hope of the believer. Because you see the book of Revelation chapter 21, the very last chapter, what does God say? He says, behold, I make all things new. And I love that he says, I make all things new. You know what he doesn't say? I will make all things new. Although we know he will, right? He doesn't say, I have made all things new. But he says, hey, I make all things new. It's who I am. It's what I do. And if you have never put your faith in Jesus, he can make you new. He can mortify, put to death that flesh, that sin nature that's inside of you. He can reconcile you to himself. He can restore you to the person that he made you, designed you, created you to be. He can rescue from that sin that Ahasuerus was so bound up in. He can take all of this and he does not throw you away through it. He does not abandon you through it. Rather, what does he do? He seeks to restore the restoring nature of God. And you know what, my friends, we live in what we could call, what some theologians call the already, but the not yet. Meaning this, God has already begun this work. He's already begun it inside of you. You're saved, a child of his. He's drawing you and you're compelled. You understand what that difference is. And we understand that we live in a place that we already are restored in a very real sense. But at the same time, we look around, we find that sin nature inside of us. We find that sin still in the world. But he's going to make those, that new too. He's going to undo all of that too. He's going to take all the brokenness, all the bad things, all the wickedness that is in the world. And what's he going to, he's going to make it just untrue. There'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. There'll be no sorrow. There'll be no death. No, any of those things. And he promises, he says, hey, I've already begun to do it. Because he who has begun a good work in you, he's faithful. The one who has given you his spirit as the earnest of our inheritance, he's going to follow through. He's going to complete it. And one day we will live in a world that is restored. And so that's the hope in Esther. Esther starts and Esther, I mean, we walked through it. It's dark. They, let, they didn't put all those details in the vegetable version. They left some things out. It's hard to palate. It's hard to face. But in the middle of this, what do we see? There's hope. There's hope. There's a king in the background of all of this seeking to restore. And that's the king that we put our faith in. 